Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Overdue Rentals podcast, the show where we talk about films that maybe never got enough attention when they first came out, or maybe they were massive, big films that everybody saw. It just seems that the discussion nowadays seems to leave them out a little bit. I'm Matthew Shuckman. And I'm Cinema Blends Mike Reyes. And this week, if you want to take a quick little vacation in your mind from all the stress and problems and hitmen in your cab, uh, we have a double feature that uh, is, quite frankly, a killer. Uh, we, not all, uh, we not only have director Lisa Joy's Reminiscence, but we also have director Michael Mann's Collateral, and we are talking about both of these films with cinematographer, film legend, generally good guy, uh, Paul Cameron. Yeah, it's uh, fantastic, you know, to finally, you know, this is actually our first, now that I think about it, this is the first time we're not going to have either a colleague or an actor and or director on. We're, we're going to actually have somebody who has a lot more knowledge on what goes behind the scenes on certain aspects than we've had before. Yeah. And again, you look at Paul's resume and I, I would not be surprised if some of these films come up because they are on our overdue rentals lists, but the man has also worked on Man on Fire and Deja Vu and just, oh, what am I forgetting? You have this little- No, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be honest with you because okay. when we were getting ready, because for those who don't know, we've actually had Paul ready to talk for a while, but you know he's gotten pushed back a few times because of his schedule, which is something I think we're gonna bring up with him as well uh, because there's some stuff going on right now. Uh, in the in the world of of uh, unionized filmmaking, but I didn't notice it, and I maybe didn't realize or forgot. But when I was looking up today, he shot the Last Supper, which is which is an early indie, which was a big thing for me when I was a kid, when I was like you know, 13, 14 years old, and that was one of his first feature films he shot. And I ah, we gotta have him back on that. We have to have him back again for some stuff. That sounds that title sounds vaguely familiar to me. However, it, yeah, we will, we'll, we'll, we'll focus on, on, on today's films. Titles that I definitely know about and you definitely know about are Reminiscence, the story of a private investigator played by Hugh Jackman, who through the power of memory and recall starts to dig deeper into a mystery where not everything is as it seems and the balance of power may be in, in, the pl- in play. There's also a romance involved. Trust me, you know, if, if, you're, if you're not into the detective thing, there is a wonderful romance story because it's Hugh Jackman and Rebecca Ferguson team back together uh, after The Greatest Showman. And then our other film uh, does have a little bit of a romantic angle, but it's mostly a hitman story because Collateral is a story about a professional killer played by Tom Cruise who has hired a cab driver played by Jamie Foxx to ferry him around L.A., taking out targets one by one. And with that, I think we should get Paul in to talk about all this stuff because we got we got a lot to talk about. Oh, yes. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, Paul Cameron coming down to the Overdue Rentals counter. Paul, welcome to the show. How are you, Paul? Uh, I'm great. I'm great. That, that's fantastic to hear because <laughs> I think it's best that we, we jump off and start with, you know, since this is for people listening to this, we're recording this on... Friday, October 15th, just three days before a possible strike by Yahtzee, just a few months after, you know, you were one of 16 cinematographers to sign a petition about work hour issues and conditions. And I'm kind of interested to know, are these just general things that would have cropped up if even COVID didn't happen? Or is it now a pressure also post-COVID that is causing a lot of this? 
Well, you know, honestly, I believe the, you know, the, the, the kind of break with COVID enabled us all to kind of be a little more reflective in our lives and, and consider, you know, what are we, you know, how are we spending our days? The amount of, what, how much time are we putting into work? How much time are we putting into our own personal lives and families? And so I think, you know, that, that reflection coupled with the fact that, you know, you, you go back into, you know, post-COVID production and, you know, you see all the protocols enforced by SAG and, you know, predominantly. And suddenly we're on set with masks and, and, and shields and, you know, we're, we're working in this new way. We're being told that we're going to work, you know, less hours and there's going to be breaks for cleansing and sterilization. And, you know, the, the, those protocols kind of, kind of came and went very quickly. You know, and I think the result of it, you know, was all of a sudden we all found ourselves back full, full speed ahead, you know, and suddenly this idea that we're going to work 10 to 12 hours a day, you know, and get, get lunch breaks and things would be a bit normal, that rest is in fact a very important, I think the battle, battle COVID and, and then suddenly, you know, we're working 14 hour days and, you know, companies are not breaking us for lunch and we're working through and we're not sleeping and we're, we're, you know, going to work at four o'clock in the afternoon on Friday and walking out at, you know, nine, 10, 11 o'clock on Saturday. So I think it was kind of a shock for, for a number of us, for myself, certainly. That's the thing that I think a lot of people are not going to, to realize yet, because the way we all think about film and TV production, you know, we always had in our head that it was break, break your back 24 hour days for, you know, for people who are not kind of in the know. So I think a lot of people are just now kind of seeing the realization that, that may have not been the case. And even if it was difficult, it's just even more difficult now. Yeah, look, the, the bottom line is we all know in the film business, you know, we, we work, you know, extremely long hours. And any business, when you take a group of people and they sign on to a project and they're passionate about doing it, nobody wants to be the one that, that kind of raises the red flag and, and, and says, you know, hey, this isn't, this isn't necessarily what I signed up for, you know, and, and being a director of photography and director even, you know, I feel much more responsible for not only my crew and the people that I'm recommending to hire, but all the other HODs and, you know, everybody down through PAs and drivers and everything. So it's like, you know, the, the, the reality is we've, you know, there's been been this push to kind of you know work longer and longer hours and it's let you know it's less expensive for for studios or streaming studios to to keep us working you know as much time as possible with those little time rest and less time on rentals and stages and travel and hotels and per diems and everything across the board so it's something that you know i think has been kind of it's been building but you know suddenly we have you know a couple of major streaming services that that are on this you know this kind of expired what should have been an expired um, new media contract they're actually you know in fact probably doing the bulk of production out there right now and that i think that's when everybody you know as this strike has kind of come you know forward and as we started talking about it initially and this you know this the group the initial group of cinematographers you know got together and talked about it is you know look we we need to be a voice we need to start to be a voice here and you know it's 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 one step forward it's everybody has to take a step forward and you know, look, we're, you know, potentially about 72 hours away from striking here. So it's, it's real. And I, I celebrate everybody who's supporting it. And I feel the cause is, you know, it's overdue. At this point, do you think it's inevitable that the strike will happen? Or do you have hope that there's uh, still time to, that there's still enough negotiations to avoid it? You know, I 
been keeping up as, on the negotiations as much as possible, but it doesn't seem to be much of a negotiation, quite honestly. And, you know, look, if, if, if the other streaming studios came to the table and said, hey, listen, you know, we'll, we, you know, why don't we respect, let's, let's start with the HBO or Showtime contracts, the ones that aren't under, under um, strike, you know, possibility right now, which is, you know, the kind of the cable, the older cable TV contract that we had. You know, that I think we, if we had some indication that we were leaning in that direction, I think people would, you know, nobody wants to go on strike and nobody, you know, people are going to lose their insurance. It's going to be a mess, you know, for, for a number of people. But, but you know, again, it's, you know, you really need something from the other side saying like, hey, we want to do the right thing. And I, you know, from my understanding of what I've heard um, so far in negotiations, we're not hearing that. So it's, it's um, we have to take a stand, you know, it's, it's just, look, how do you, you know, the, you know, you look at the, what some of us do, it's, you know, to, you know, you, you know, I'm, a, I'm still below the line, I'm getting paid more than HOD, some HODs or, or, or workers, but you know, look, I show up an hour early, I stay an hour late. If that's a 14 hour day, that's 16 hours. I'm not breaking half know, most days. You know, even if there is a lunch, I'm usually asked to work through a meeting or prepping something or whatever. But, you know, to actually ask people doing physical labor or showing up, you know, a makeup artist and hair, showing up at, and customers showing up at 3.30 in the morning, you know, for a 6.30 shoot call. And then they're there till, you know, 7.30 at night. It's rather insane. You know, it's just we've created this kind of production beast in the United States that is really, you know, kind of reminiscent of, you know, kind of, you know, going back to like, you know, coal mining towns, you know, it's like it's just it's it's just kind of it's not acceptable. And, you know, I wish there, I wish we were going for, for for even more than we are going for in the negotiations here, because it's going to be hard to get more down the road. But um you know, look, you know, people are like, well, you know, what's, you know, your experience overseas, my experience overseas is working in places like London and Australia, where, you know, certainly in, a Lon in, in London, we're, for the most part, we're working in a, a 10 hour walking meal, you know, and I, you know, they're not unionized and, you know, there, there's separate issues with that, but there's a, there's a collective agreement there that's very strong that people are saying, hey, this is what we're willing to do. And if you want to work an hour or two overtime a week. You know, they, you know, the, the workers are getting paid a very nominal fee to do that. And it works. There's a lot of production there. And the same thing in Australia. And they, you know, the Australians have another deal, which is a 12 hour deal. And that, you know, is based on 11 and a half. I think it's 11 and a half hours of work and 30 minute paid lunch. And, you know, after doing, you know, the last Pirates of the Caribbean, there, basically on the 12 hour deal. You know, watching them break for lunch and feed 200 people immediately, you know, like there's ways to do it, you know, and, and suddenly you're feeding, you know, 200 people and you're getting them back in, you know, 35, 40 minutes, you know, our half hour lunches invariably 45 minutes to an hour. So it never makes sense. So producers and people are like, what the hell, let's just pay the meal penalty and, you know, we'll give them food, but the reality is there's so many departments that can't break in the, you know during a physical production day unless they're actually given you know and and that, you know on on days like that i try to do it with my crew i'm like listen you guys have to sit down and eat but you know then a you know a director walks over where AD walks over and they why aren't we you know why aren't we moving why are we moving and then they put their food down and that's the last they see of the day and they don't eat 
and you know it happens every day you know to all crews and it even happens on you know the the better negotiating contract jobs that we have as well i'm sure you can't generalize this to every reduction also and but just like you're saying there's so much going on with so many different departments but are there cases especially now when all these things crop up but you know where there's like some line producer or somebody who just like kind of hops throughout the day to each department and tries to figure out ways to even just ease it for, for anybody else without even thinking about themselves or thinking about a, a rule maybe broken? Well, I think the only way I can answer that honestly is, you know, I think, you know, most of the producers I work with are, you know, are wonderful people and, and the intention is there to do that. But the practicality mm-hmm. of doing it is, you know, it's just oftentimes we're in difficult locations and the base camp and the food is far away and you have to take a van there to get there to eat so that if they're bringing food by the time the food gets there and then it gets you know down the hill and across the river you know it's it's (laughs) two hours later and and cold and then maybe if there's 30 people only 10 meals arrive so nobody wants to take food from anybody and you know there's this kind of uncomfortability so you know it's pretty simple it's it's you know i mean i think it would take a lot in the u.s to get crews to agree to working a 10-hour you know french hour day with a walking lunch or you know with a you know a break you know m- most of the members want you know they want a break and they want they want a lunch break you're not going to break people and you're not going to feed them and you're going to work them 12 14 hours and you're going to let them rest for eight to ten hours this is you know there should be financial penalties and you know there just should be and and that this shouldn't even be a conversation we shouldn't even be working that we should have a law that says you know you don't work over 12 hours so what do you do with costume and hair and makeup the poor people that have to come you know or pre-rigging or you know what about the department people well you stagger them you get more crew you just you do it you get more crew and you that's how you facilitate it and look i don't know a producer that 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 is like saying we don't want we you know we want to keep things the way they are and and treat the people the way we've been treating them no producer wants to do that and if you know if you have a production that's a 10 million dollar production and they say in order to you know to work 12 hour day or 10 hour day and stagger crews like you know hair and makeup the ones that come in at the frightening hour of the morning and it's going to cost them a million dollars that's a million dollars more and that's just the way it is and it, it's you know the the flexibility to to pay another actor a million dollars or you know pay a quarter of a million dollars for for a location there always seems to be room for that but when it comes down to unfortunately with labor and crew i feel like producers you know they have their hands tied because their job is to get the most for the least and that's that's why they're hired so they're they're in a you know production managers they're in a very very difficult position. I mean, most of them I know are, you know, again, they're, they're amazing, wonderful people that would like nothing better than to treat people better if they could. <laughs> well, it must be strange too, because I remember, you know, like, just like with anything, with any, any, any type of business that's going to talk, talk about a strike, you know, yeah. you know, I don't want to throw out the word scabs there or something like that. Cause I remember my first gig ever on a set, mm-hmm. I was not paid. I was really young. So I was eager and I was the film runner as well as a PA. So I was like last to leave the set. Yeah. I was driving the film to the, to the, to the, uh, to, to get the developed, you know, at, I was driving home at three o'clock in the morning yeah. and getting up two hours later, drive right back to set. And I was doing it for free. Yeah. 
so like I imagine that there's some somewhere in the back of somebody's mind they're still thinking well we can get it done and that's all that matters to, to, to the big to the people who are on one side that's all that they can think about I imagine yeah it's unfortunate but it's you know again it's the structure <laughs> the structure of producing and 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 you know creating you know being a head of production at a, st- a streaming or a studio you know is is how how to do it for the least amount of money in the and and you know the quickest time and get the best product and that's that's the nature of the business and i i think if you if you if we actually sat down and we took some some current productions both with you know the ones the contracts that were were about to you know the strike against and the and the existing contracts and we looked at the money difference between you know what would a day what 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 would all of these days cost if we actually work 12 hours and we actually broke people and we actually went, you know, 10, 10, 20 days over on a, on a, you know, a full season of something, you know, I think we'd be surprised how little money it was comparatively. Look, some of these shows are, you know, the, the reality we're, we're, we're in the, you know, we're in the upwards of $500 million for, for a season on some of these shows, right? Mm-hmm. We've exceeded any, any, anything we ever thought it would be. And it's like, you know, look, I've worked on 300, you know, shot $300 million movies and again, been treated very well. But, you know, I've also worked on some streaming stuff where it's like, Jesus, this is really crazy. You know, you really weren't, you know, we're not being taken care of the way we are by some other studios. And I think that's, that's the brunt of, you know, the negotiation here. It's like, look, it's an opportunistic time for them all to say, hey, look, you know what, let's make this better for the workers, you know, and you know, my feeling is they will get better content and, you know, they will, they'll, they'll end up with an as good or better product, you know, that's going to cost them some more money, but they're also going to create relationships with the workers that, you know, are going to want to come back currently, like a name, you know, some of the streaming services and, 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 and laborers that work on these shows that will not work for them. You know, they know that, you know, and the difference is if you go to a city like New York, if, you know, it's just directing something there. And it's, um, you know, we were under uh, working with HBO and Westworld and, you know, that that contract's not, not, you know, the one being questioned right now. But but there were plenty of guys and, and women on that crew that were 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 kind of happy to jump on with us because they were on another you know, another show that was done by some of the streaming services in question here. Because they're getting paid a little more and they're just, they feel better about themselves. So like, do you want to create, you know, a work, a work, you know, a, a work standard for, for the craftsmen that make your product so that they want to come back? Or do you want to create a work atmosphere to take advantage of them as much as possible so they have no reason to come back? It's a, it's seems to be a very simple business model, especially when you're looking at some of the the companies that are in question here and the, the you know, the, the financing, you know, the how wealthy they are as, as corporations, you know, and I look, one of the main things with all the streaming services and studios is attracting talent. They, they're taught, you know, they start with the top of the directors and, and actors and producers and you go down, you know, down the list with HODs and they want to attract the best people. So we're They need to understand they're driving down a road that strike or no strike. There's going to be a number of people that are going to just say, Hey, look, I can work, for six months, you know, as a as a fourth grip on a rigging crew with this streaming service or studio, or I can work with this streaming service and studio and get paid, you know, uh, maybe a little more, maybe the same, but get treated better. And I think that's what 
that's a bridge they're crossing right now. And certainly the outcome of this will, will really, you could potentially taint a lot of, a lot of workers, you know, because look, everybody's hanging in there now. Last week, so many of these shows that are potentially going on strike, they work, you know, 14 hour days. They work Saturdays and Sundays, I believe on, on like three or four shows. I talked to people and that's absurd. It's just, it's just, you have to understand on the other side of this is that there's people that care about what they do, whether you're, you know, construction on the construction crew or a grip or your late track on a dolly. People take pride in their work and they want to do the right thing and they want to feel like they're being treated correctly. So we just need a wake up call right now. Yeah, it's absolutely. Uh, in, a, in a similar sort of context, we have seen, uh, this is sort of piggybacking into the mm-hmm. one of our main topics of discussion sure. today. Uh, we've sort of seen that sort of thing happen with streaming services acquiring films like Reminiscence yeah. to be streaming, uh, like a, either a simultaneous streaming debut or a, a totally streaming debut. Mm-hmm. And that's another sort of thing that's kicked off uh, another one of these touch points that uh, COVID has sort of highlighted. Mm-hmm. Talent are, uh, you, we had this Scarlett Johansson lawsuit with Disney no. and Widow. And it's it's really interesting seeing not just these various touch points where, like you said, if people are happy, the content can flow. Streaming services can build themselves. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, quite honestly, it'll, you know, if we do go on, so it'd be interesting to see if there's some new new companies that arise that that some of the bigger talent gravitate towards. You know, like you know, there's reasons why you know all the showrunners and directors and and, and talent you know gravitate towards you know different streaming services or cable networks or networks at different times or studios because they're they're being treated fairly. And the people around them are being treated fairly, you know, and, you know, we're kind of going back into this almost contract system, you know, from the 40s in a weird way with with directors and specifically and and the deal and showrunners and the deals they're making, you know, but, you know, the other point to your other point, it is, it's a very complicated time and we're dealing with this, you know, on, on, on the Academy as a board of governor we're you know, we're, we're dealing with this as the ASC is dealing with it. It's like, what, what is a theatrical film and what is the release on that? And then what is the, you know, what, what's the ramifications if it's just streamed, you know, not shown theatrically? I mean, look, you know, again, I have nothing negative against any of this, but you have companies like Netflix that own a theater in Paris and, you know, one of my favorite theaters in here at the Paris, it, they can open a movie for a week at no cost, basically, and it qualifies for Academy, um, you know, submission and, and put the, put it on the next week. And, and, you know, I think we're, we're, we, you know, as we know, without naming other studios or people, cause I have nothing against it, but it's, you know, many studios own theaters now, and this is kind of like this, you know, kind of weird, weird, you know, how, how, how does something qualify for one thing or another? And then, you know, obviously the, 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 the biggest, you know, thing is, is, is that gray area that you talk about is, <clears throat> you know, what, when a, you take a film like Reminiscence or Dune that's coming out and, you know, you release mm-hmm. it theatrically and, and, and on HBO's Max or whatever streaming service the same day. What is that all about? 
And, you know, it, it, it kind of stemmed from the whole COVID fear and the fear of going to theaters. And, look, you know, we know people aren't going to movie theaters they, the way they were. And we're in a city where they shut down half the movie theaters like Arclight. And, you know, I've been to other cities where you see all the multiplexes are shut down. And, you know, there's a real fear of, of how to get people back into theaters. And I think the reaction is kind of like, oh, well, let's just give them more content at home. And it's kind of crippling the theatrical experience, which, you know, I mean, you know, call me old school, but, but you can't replace, you know, sitting in a dark room with a, you know, yeah. six, a 60 foot screen and having that experience. It's not the same, you know, with your, your, you know, AirPods and, and iPhone, you know, uh, in the back of a car driving somewhere, you know, it's just not, not, Films aren't made for that experience, but, you know, it's, but it's tough, you know, and I understand that if this is where things are going and the theatrical experience is waning and we're, we're, we're going away from that, then that's what it is. But look, I just saw Passing, you know, Tessa Thompson's film uh, by Re Rebecca Hall uh, at the New York Film Festival screen. And the impact of that film on that screen at the New York Film Festival is astounding. It's just, is so powerful as an experience. It's not going to be that experience on a, on your phone. And you know, I don't know how to say it, but it, you know, when you talk about it from a business point of view, it's it's you know, you you've got, and I'm not going to name the services, but there are services out there that do not, and we know who they are. They don't they don't have any intention of, re of releasing theatrically, and they don't really care about you know a qualifying for an Academy Award. They they care about content for their, their streaming service. And that's their choice, you know, that's their business model, but it's certainly not helping, helping the theatrical experience. You know? Yeah, there's a, I can think of at least one name that we won't mention <laughs> here that has been all over the news that it's, that is the, yeah. the new, their basic new raison d'etre yeah. at, at, on the studio gate. Yeah. But yeah. I was lucky enough to watch Reminiscence oh, on yeah. an IMAX screen. Great. I watched on the regular screen, but I wasn't a theater. Oh, I like it. I like oh, yeah. I like the regular print better. Go ahead. That's <laughs> good. Oh, really? Yeah. Elaborate on that because I'm I was very interested on whether you had any sort of input on the ratio shifts or oh, yeah. how yeah. they uh, optimized it for IMAX, as the the credits tell us. Well, you know, it, it's it's kind of been a, it was a great experience. Well, look, I love the movie. And I love working with Lisa Joy and everybody on Reminiscence and certainly Hugh Jackman and Rebecca Ferguson and Tandy, Tandy Wayne Newton. But the process of color correcting the film, it kind of started like, I don't know, was it was in April last year or something. So it was like super heavy fear about being in the rooms together. And we, we, we ended up getting a theater, um, the old Gary Marshall Theater with pic the picture shop owns out in, out in Burbank there. And, you know, I worked with a colorist and sat 20 feet away with them in a mask when uh, just the two of us were allowed in the room. And, uh, you know, color correcting that film was a great experience. And then I went over to Photocam and did the SDR and HDR with Dave Cole, who was the actually the original colorist, but couldn't do the DI at the time. And that was fantastic. And then I, you know, went, went over with Dave and did the Dolby, which was another, you know, uh, beautiful color correction I feel like you know that that's another one of my favorites and then you know we then I guess Warner decided hey we're going to go for everything let's go for IMAX too <laughs> and suddenly I'm with Lee Widmer over at IMAX and and um 
you know, as you know, um, they have a proprietary kind of soup they put on on their on their um, on the theatrical TCPs that we submit. And do you know they're they're like different beasts. I love this certain kind of silver screen quality of the IMAX and the incredible laser projection. You know, on the which is their best projection. You know, the, the, the laser laser IMAX and. It, it it lives and breathes a certain way on the screen, but then, like you saw it on the on on the on regular theatrical, and that's the one I actually like the most because it's kind of kind of the most you know going back to kind of the most basic theatrical experience, and and we know like you know much like viewing at home, viewing in a lot of theaters are very different, you know the ambient level, the projectors, the bulb, but I feel like maybe that's the last link to what I kind of feel like what's left in a digital, it's the most analog aspect of a digital, digital world in a way, but, but the, the basic theatrical is kind of my favorite. You know, talking about it, it could just be in color mm -hmm. correction that you would think about this. It could be mm -hmm. setting it up for when you're actually, you know, shooting it itself. But this is an interesting situation reminiscence because <laughs> As many people know, you know, you shoot day for night in, in real life sometimes. Mm -hmm. And here's a film where you're coming in and your people are technically have gone nocturnal in an essence. So our, our living life is the night and, and our, our sleep times the day. Mm -hmm. Was there any thought that went into the way that those are supposed to look to actually make them affect a little differently because of that aspect of the story? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, the, the, the main kind of visual cue from Lisa Joy was that she, you know, she honestly has this vision, you know, of, of Miami, you know, underwater, like many, many climate, climate, climate scientists and specialists believe that it's, you know, that we're, we're heading towards a rise in sea level. We know that's kind of happening. And, and her vision of Miami in 2050 was, was this very, you know, kind of wonderful, kind of non-dystopian future, right? So, so it's this, you know, it, it, it's much more like going back to grapes of wrath in a way of like the land barons and the, you know, and the and the have thoughts, right, that are separated by by the sea, and the whole feeling of the film is like she wanted this just this sense of heat and and warmth and the skin and humidity and this just kind of pending reality of people that are kind of trapped in in the days that are too hot to be outside and having to work at night. So, you know, it's, we shot most of the film in New Orleans. We shot for five days in Miami. So we got as much as we could in Miami um, to help to help sell sell that. We built the, the kind of South Beach um, canal area where they come and go from the Coconut Club. Uh, that was all practically built at an old Six Flag park outside of... of um, but, it, you know, it's funny because when you're standing there, you know, in the, in the Six Flag Park outside of New Orleans, you know, it was probably late September when we were shooting there. It's late September. It was literally like, you know, 100 degrees and 100% humidity at night. And the actors come out and they're kind of glossy. You know, they've been touched up, but they kind of got that sheen to them. And they're kind of sweating a little bit naturally and sticking to their clothes. And it's like, this is the reality, you know, of, of where we're going in some places. That is amazing that you mentioned that Six Flag Park in New Orleans, because that seems to be like a, for, I don't know if it still is, but it seemed to be like a really hot filming location. Like uh, the Percy Jackson movies yeah. filmed there. 
Jurassic World was there. Yeah. I think one of the Planet of the Apes uh, prequels mm -hmm. was there too. Yeah, and there's also tons of alligators and wild boars there, which made it interesting. So that's kind of fun. Oh. <laughs> they actually went in and you know they 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 kind of you know they, they said oh well you have groups of people that will take out all the wild boars and alligators and then I think it was like the the, the first night of shooting I was setting up a shot with Hugh Jackman and. Uh, and I looked past the camera and he's like, what, what? And he turned behind and we saw like two guys carrying like a 12 foot alligator out of the, <laughs> out of the area. It was like, <laughs> it was pretty, pretty crazy. You know, it was pretty absurd. But, um, yeah, it is a very popular, it's funny because I know they want to, they want to, to knock it down or whatever, but there's something kind of, you know, it's like we're used to in this country, like saving buildings and, and, you know, parks and everything, but in a weird way, this is like a place that should be saved. You, know? <laughs> you mentioned since you you have a relationship before this film with Lisa mm -hmm. and after, of course, <clears throat> you know, a lot of us still see a big difference between television production and film production. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering, is there a change going from the small screen, we'll say, to the big screen, even still working with her and your relationship, you know, in, in these kind of uh, fields uh when 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 one thing comes from tv to no it's a good point i mean i think the you know the the bar has been set so high in in you know streaming content you know and and certainly in a, in in, a, in network contact as well the bar has been raised and you know, I find myself, I just directed a, an episode of Westworld and, and this is a big movie. It's a big movie. You know, there's movie stars in it. There's, it's a big machine. Um, you know, I, I remember when I signed on to shoot the pilot for, for Lisa's husband, Jonathan, you know, whatever it was five years ago, it was huge, you know, and, and that was my, my first kind of, I had done a couple pilots in the past that were, I think, more network oriented, but you know, this was, you know, obviously we've been seeing some big shows like The Sopranos and Dead Wittens and, you know, and then certainly Game of Thrones. And suddenly you realize this stuff is massive. And, you know, there's really in a production sense, in my eyes, really no difference between the two whatsoever, which kind of takes us, you know, full circle to the production in general and what, what connotates a studio, what con connotates a streaming service or, or new media. The fact is it should all be, it should all be classified as huge <laughs> you know, because it's become that. And, you know, when you, again, when you look at, at, at television, you know, some, some shows are topping, you know, 20 to 30 million an episode and that, that, when you think about to create an hour of content is, is, you know, it's kind of shocking, you know, when you think like, wow, you, you do that times 10 and, you know, you're basically, you're making 10 movies and, you know, I'll speak personally, even from, you know, shooting and directing some Westworld is that suddenly, you know, I go into an, I'm just finishing an edit now it could easily be an hour and a half long film. This, this episode easily, you know, and and you realize okay they're you know we've got to trim it down they're going to pull some stuff here and there and kind of whittle it down as much as they can but you know to answer again specifically it's it's there is no difference you know i mean yeah. everything across the board how the editorial side the post-production side it's the visual effects side it's massive and multi, you know we just came back from you know cabo san lucas in new york with multiple units 
you know, so, and they have, and there's multiple units, you know, starting up um, here in Los Angeles next week again for the show. And it, it's huge, you know, and there's, you know, so there is no difference, you know, and that, and that has to kind of be addressed, I think, in the bigger picture too, you know, and we're, and then again, you know, how we address it in terms of uh, the Academy and how we recognize what's a film or what's a, you know, how do we look at this stuff? Because there's always been this conflict of, oh, well, that's television, right? And now suddenly, well, that's, you know, that's, that's cable and that now it's new media. So we've kind of, we need to kind of dress everything as kind of one, one, one type of production, I think. And, you know, we just have to clarify theatrical distribution and how it relates to, and how the Academy wants to, to relate to films that aren't actually screened theatrically, but are full, full films that are made by streaming services for, for their, their, with no intention of uh, theatrical distribution, but have the same production value and same movie stars as everything else. You know? Now, uh, since we are on overdue rentals, we do mm -hmm. want to bring up a, uh, another film that as we, as we researched deeper into it, we did not realize the interesting history that you have with Collateral because you were on, on board as the, the cinematographer for the first three weeks before you had departed uh, due to creative differences. If, and correct me if I'm wrong, mm -hmm. I don't wanna speak out of turn here. No, 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 I still have creative differences with Michael, but, but we actually speak quite a bit. So, um, you know, it's, uh, that's, that is true. What's interesting to us, or at least me, I'm sorry, I don't want to mean to speak for you, Mike, on this specifically. And I, I'm, I apologize because I may go on a slight small rant here. Mm -hmm. Is because, Thinking of myself growing up and understanding film, and then as the discussion went to, we may be going to all digital, you know, mm -hmm. I was very prescient for that as far as my age when I understood what was going on. Because I was in film school myself right when 28 Days Later was coming out. And we were using Canon XL1s, and then I found out that's what they were shooting 28 Days Later on. Mm -hmm. And in a lot of our minds, we thought that that's what digital meant. Digital meant it was, you know, I mean, yes, they were going to be better than a prosumer camera eventually or already were, but it was this idea that maybe it was going to be a lot more, we didn't have, you know, people weren't going to have to worry about setups the way they used to and so on and so forth. And collateral seemed to be one of the big markers for the real switch into the current digital age we're at now. And I'm just curious as how speedy it kind of went for you guys through all of this or because it, we're not in the discussion we don't know how lengthy it was that there were companies working on cameras i mean red red to me when red first started becoming a big thing well, i guess what was it like around when red tails came out mm -hmm. right um where you started to think that that's maybe when something new was on the horizon but it was probably before that and i'm wondering where you feel for yourself that real switch came. Well, you know, the collateral, you know, the experience for me on collateral was was great because um, you know, I'd started scouting with Michael Mann and you know, li literally he bought this old like 1967 Vista cruiser with a back bench window that we could open the rear window and look backwards driving around LA and you know, breathe the gas fumes for three months um, at night. <laughs> uh, watching coyotes cross the street in the middle of the night which we put in, in the movie. But um, you know the the thing about it was, you know, we both had like new still digital cameras and we were taking photographs that, you know, were kind of reaching into exposure much, you know, much more than any film camera would. 
And it became kind of very, the most important thing, one of the most important things, not the, but it was visually certainly was to capture this kind of acidic, acrid, you know, LA night, you know, where, where you hear the crackling of the transformer and you see the, the cypress trees, you know, uh, in the, in the glow of the sodium light in the background, you know, and this kind of weird kind of presence of the the urban landscape at night and and you know i talked to michael and 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 actually manuel besky because she would had used um i guess it was a sony 900 for a scene on ali on a rooftop and then running across the 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 bridge there the skiing bridge or whatever to uh, the causeway there and you know, I was talking about it and, and, you know, of course the whole thing was like, oh God, you don't want to do that. Don't, don't do that. And, and I, I said, well, I want to test it, you know, test the Sony 950. And I, cause there wasn't really no choice. The Viper was coming out and all the promises were there, but, but it was like, okay, how do I get this? You know, and unfortunately Michael had a, a screening room with a 2k projector, which was, you know, the equivalent of a 4 or whatever, but we had a way to look at it every day. So we, we would scout, you know, we'd scout from, you know, 10 o'clock till two or three in the morning. And then of course, Michael would say, we'll see you at seven, you know, which was like, wait a minute, that's four hours. We're going to come in and, you know, and, and, and plug in the, in the drives and look at what we shot the night before on a couple of tests. And it just, it just, it just was like, we have to shoot the film this way. You know, I, I, I said, Michael, I will, let me try everything photochemically, but I think I've pushed film exposure-wise and always wanted to, you know, dig into into this night urban look. And I've never been able to do it on film with the limitations of a 500 speed stock, you know. And all the tests I did, uh, you know, were, were I couldn't get that look. And I and so this kind of evolved as okay. I said, well, let's shoot it on on this bloody Sony 950 and he's like well Viper's coming out we'll test I was like whatever but this is you know the this is the path it wasn't like you know oh let's uh, digital is there let's do it it was to me it was like oh this is a film this is a stock like a film stock that was available to me that actually really was the right canvas to be on to paint this picture for this movie. You know, the, to answer the second part of the question is, you know, you, you think, oh, well, that's great. You know, you just grab the camera, you go and you pop the tape in and go, no, it, you know, you have to like, I, I built like three or four, what we call the Pope mobiles, which are basically the cab that was kind of enclosed in, you know, if we were on the driver's side, then it had like plexiglass and a platform outside the driver's side. So two cameras could be there. You know, the other side, we had another one front, we had one and then we had a, you know, another one, but the camera car had, um, you know, the, I guess they, what were the recorders? They, they looked like, a, not, not a D5 record or something. I don't know what it was like this mat looked like three quarter, but it was a tape, basically a tape system. Jesus, I can't remember the name of it, but a big, big tape <laughs> for, for a half an hour of material. And then of course, you know, they had just release these uh, hard drives and I'm sorry I'm blanking on the name of the hard drives too and we we're like so excited we didn't have to you know like oh we you know we we let's test these hard drives we won't have to have these big tape machines on the camera car driving around well of course we shot a huge test with with Tom Cruise and on the hard drives and we're supposed to show it to the studio next day and we go to the post facility to you know get the material off the hard drive and look at it and color correct it and bring it over to the studio and of course we couldn't get the material off the hard drive so it was like, oh shit. So long story short on that, you know, we ended up 
having to record. We, we stuck with the hard drives. They kind of fixed the technology, but the studio made us back it up with recording on this D5 taper, massive. So the back of the camera car looked like the back room of a post-production facility. And it was literally like the front wheels were lifting off the ground because there was so much, you know, and then, then the monitors back then were, you know, they were still, um, you know, massive analog monitors. They weren't, they weren't, you know, uh, was yeah. a solid, solid state technology. So a huge monitor. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so 9 million cable. It just looked like the back of a controller. I remember going like, oh my God, what did I cre you know, create here? But, you know, when you go and you, you know, turn off the lights and you see a scene cut and you realize, holy shit, we've never seen Los Angeles or any city like this really, you know, that was the right way to go for that. And then, you know, the transition for me was, you know, the Genesis kind of came out not too long after. And I was doing a movie called Deja Vu with Tony Scott and New Orleans got wiped out. Uh, by, by Katrina and we went back down that November we were going to try to gear up it was still so by the time we got down to start again in January there was no external lights on in the city all the lights were wiped out and I was like shit there's no light in the city like what are we going to do and and I pitched this you know to Tony you know we'll sh maybe we'll shoot all the night stuff digitally and I can amp that up you know to like you know, whatever 2500 ASA or something like that and basically just put up some practicals after adequate testing and trickery. I tricked him into liking the, the mixing, the <laughs> mixing the digital with, you know, skip bleach negative on in the daytime. And, and, um, you know, I was able to light the city actually my gaffer at the time. And I built these high powered sodium and metal highlight lights. And, you know, they're, they're actually, if you, if you're familiar with a light called the 12K par, which has a really, it's like a big car light beam that just blasts 12K, you know, through this, for now, we actually built those units before the 12K part ever came out and, and put in high powered sodium and, and metal highlight. And we flew them on Condors with the 2K generator parked at, at the bottom. So it was very easy in New Orleans to have six Condors up around, you know, Bourbon Street or on the bridge or something you know, or along the, the banks and, and not have six generators and six Jenny ops and that whole thing. They were basically, you know, was able to read into it. So that, that was kind of the, you know, for me that, but again, I always think, I thought of it like, okay, the Genesis is another film stock to me. And I matched it with the daylight film stock, you know, which was, you know, whatever was you know, not the equivalent of the 150 ASA film at the time. So I think I still kind of look at things that way. <laughs> I think it's still interesting though, because as much as I can go back and look at, and I think Mike, Mike and I were talking about this both when we rewatched Collateral before we were preparing to talk about this. Because in my head, I remember when I first saw it and I said to myself, of course, this does not look like it was shot, you know, on what I consider, you know, I, I could have bought this and shot this and you know, yeah. make it look you know, good, obviously. But in the same breath, Looking back at it now, it looks even better than I remember it. Mm. And I'm wondering how these things now age. Mm -hmm. Is it, is it, because again, if using 28 days later as, as the testing stick, you look back at that, of course, it's, it's never going to look fantastic. It's never mm -hmm. going to look clear and great, even though it's a great movie. And I'm wondering, is there this kind of commonplace now between making things look glossy to making things look real? Because collateral looks, and when I say real, I also mean it looks, it, 
it has grain to it in so no. many ways compared to something now. No, it's true actually. Both that nine fifty and then you know the later work I did on with with, with Tony with Deja Vu and the Genesis. You know, there was an inherent noise to it that that did feel like grain to us, and it, it was kind of welcomed. You know, and then you know I think the the hard part is then you know certainly as a cine, you know, cinematographer doing bigger movies and you know, being ultimately faced with the resistance to using film and the the kind of, you know, push to use digital, you know, we ended up, you know, going from, you know, a medium, you know, that, that was developed for a hundred years and was elegant, eloquent, you know, like an amazing, you know, as, as film stocks were and corporations that were, you know, gearing stocks toward taste of, you know, higher end cinematographers or whatever to kind of address their their desires suddenly the bottom falls out and we're like data for a decade. And we're basically just, you know, many of us, I think we're just struggling to get an image as good as for a long time. And then, you know, um, you know, certainly as, as manufacturers perfected their, their, their sensors and their cameras, then we have the ultra clean, you know, and I remember I was supposed to shoot total the reboot of Total Recall I was going to do anamorphic film and you know literally two weeks before principal photography len weissman you know came to me and said hey listen they they just told me they'll give me five more days of shooting if we go digital and i i just my heart fell out and i was kind of like oh my god but you know i love len and i said well you know shooting time is 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 your time and it's very important so i understand you know the extra days of course so I, you know, and then, you know, I said, yes. And meanwhile, I have like the most amazing set of CNE anamorphics that I had for maybe five movies. And, you know, um, Lisa, Lisa Harp, who ran Pinterest in Hollywood for years, put it all together for me and set it up to try. So I'm like, okay, well, I'll just go digital. And then, you know, I go in for the first test on, on Red. And I don't even remember what mom Red won or I don't know what the hell it was at the time. And I put the lens up and I'm like, what happened to, this is, no, wait, this is a wide angle. What's going on here? And so I realized the whole fucking field of view is, you know, way off. And, and they're like, oh, no, no, but you're shooting 239. And in this Kodak with this size, this is what you see with the, I'm like, yeah, but where's the, where's the best part? Where's that sides of the lens? You know, where, where is that? <laughs> so then, you know, um, so I'm only kind of illustrating this because it's it's been a it's been you know, and I think many many cinematographers will attest to it. It's you know, until until very recently, it's been this kind of beta reality for us shooting films and dealing with it, and we're still dealing with those same kind of codec issues and focal lengths and whether you know, a movie wants to record on two K or four K or eight K and how it affects the optics that we we use and the deliverables. It's all. It's all so complicated that way, but but I think it's, you know, what, what I'm seeing out there too, and, you know, I've done it is, you know, people are, you know, we're shooting like a movie like Reminiscence where, where you know, I wanted to shoot it on film, Lisa wanted to shoot it on film, but because I was shooting live projection and I'm, you know, doing this illusion live that, that you know, the Sony Venice in 2500 mode was perfect, you know, and it just, that you know i had to light the scenes for that with the projection and shoot that way so that was like the perfect stock for that that movie you know and then i went back you know, i'm just illustrating this as i i went in and i used live brain which i've used on a few movies and i love the product live brain that sunny bird developed that's basically a very kind of interesting interactive 
grain program that's not just a basic plug-in but i'm seeing plenty of movies where you know films more financially challenged they're using plugins to put in a little bit of grain and texture to emulate film and i and i appreciate that i i you know there there was something about you know and and this is you know the reason why westworld we still we still being shot on films there's i guarantee you if you do the test that we did there's something undeniable about a close-up in film and a close-up digitally on a massive screen and the feeling you get emotionally from it and there's something about the burning boiling crystals and this you know how it smooths out the skin okay so then you shoot it you know on 4k or 6k or whatever and then you you add a little grain and maybe you you know def, you know do use a highlight tool to defocus it and you try to emulate it you don't get it and and that's the hard thing for me and i'm just kind of just saying is that's kind of being you know altruistic and have been you know a dp for a long time is i don't care what anybody says i'll, I'll i'm happy to have you guys come and look at the, some of the tests from other you there's just it's you can't deny it you cannot deny how 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 much more emotional a close-up and film on a big screen is actually compared to one digitally that's affected later to look like the like film well it, I, I think it's interesting because you sometimes you can even see it on it I'll use this example because I remember when I finally got to see the man who killed Don Quixote mm. and I went home that night and I popped my copy of Lost in La Mancha in and seeing those original, those yeah. few shots that we got that he originally shot and seeing just even the depth of field, the way it looked. And even just on my, on like, granted it's a 15 screen, but it's still my TV screen. Yeah. Just seeing the difference and, and how, not to say that the film looked bad when it came out, but man, I wanted to see how it looked through how it originally was planned. Well, I think, you know, I, I, there's just, again, it just, you know, the, some of the shots and that are just stunning, but, you know, I think that, you know, you hit on something very interesting that, that's been a big part of my path as a, as a cinematographer is, you know, I've always, I've always been very interested in the kind of the psychology of depth of field is what I call it, you know, which is basically maintaining depth of field. And I remember, you know, I, I didn't really have any any mentors when I started shooting. Suddenly, you know, I ended up, you know, on the on the street shooting Gone in 60 Seconds downtown Los Angeles. And I'd done some tests and, you know, I knew I'd have to, you know, on the, in the anamorphic world, I was going to have to go wide and then I was going to have to bang some tight ones on and get those close-ups and move on to the next scene. And I did a few tests downtown and I was like, Jesus, you know, I, I just didn't like this reality of putting on a, a 130 five or 150 anamorphic and suddenly they're just floating heads against you know interesting bokeh you know it just suddenly you have this wide shot and a medium shot and then you go to these close-ups and these heads are kind of floating in this reality and you know i'm only bringing it so 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 what i ended up doing gone in 60 seconds which you know is i lit the night exteriors at night for five six and on the wides, I put an ND6 and I shot them a two-way if I could on the, you know, if I could open up that much on the CDNEs. And then on the close-ups, I pulled, I pulled the ND to get two more, two more stops to depth of field. And at the time, I already thought I was absolutely like, why are you doing that? You know, why would you do that? This is fucking crazy. And I'm like, well, because I, it's very important to me to ground close-ups. And fascinated by so many DPs and the, the you know, the just the great work that's being done out there. But I, I do see a general um, theme of shooting wide open. And, you know, I don't know whether this is stemming from kind of uh, 
you know, just uh, all personal choices or budget or lack of lighting or whatever. But, you know, what happened to me when, when the Super 35 sensor came and now the full frame sensor, suddenly we're back to using, you know, the in Alexis, we're back to using, you know, um, the anamorphic lenses we, we, we shot on bigger movies in the past, right? There was a time we couldn't really use those because they were cutting off, you know, the field of view on those lenses. Suddenly it comes back and everybody's shooting wide open. And to me, all the films started to look alike, you know, you know, except for a little bit of lighting. Many films started, and I see like, oh, there's nobody, you know, really maintaining depth of field or they don't, you know, many, I didn't see many directors of photography kind of leaning into how to utilize that. And then for me, when the Sony Venice came out, I was with the internal NDs, I was like, holy cow, this is my friend right here. I can just, you know, I'm going to shoot the scene at night, you know, and I, you know, I test 500 versus 2,500 on a screen. I can't see the difference, much difference in the noise, maybe slight loss of saturation, but you know, suddenly I'm shooting street scenes at 2,500 and, and, you know, ND9 or 1.2 at night for the wides. And I'm going into deciding whether I want to use a three or a six, you know, or a nine for a medium or close up and really managing the way I want the depth of field and shot different shots within a sequence to feel. So it's kind of come full circle in a very interesting way. Uh, sort of to close things off for us, I think I think we're running up against time. Uh, were you were you to have had your way with Collateral? What is the biggest change that you would have made to how the film looked? I think you know regarding Collateral, I I, I wouldn't 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 have changed anything. You know, um, in terms of creating a different look. You know, I mean, if you know if the sensor was as you know kind of sensitive or noise free as it was now that would have helped a lot because you know we we were challenged you know there was a weird thing like you know the wide shots and the medium shots look great with a certain signal to noise relationship you know which is basically exposure digital exposure right the close-ups with the same signal you know a signal noise ratio didn't look as good so you know, I developed all the lighting in the cab. Basically, it's all, I, I, you know, I'd seen like the first um, bus stop or something where, you know, I, I, I walked by a bus stop and I realized that's a backlit image without a fluorescent tube. How did that, how do they do that? You know, looking like, how is that done? There's no light fixture here. And then, find, you know, find the manufacturer and realize it's the same phosphor paper that they put in appliances or phones or whatever. And I, you know, got in touch with a uh, manufacturer. You know, we ended up buying a ton of this phosphor paper and, and mixing the, you know, the, the color for for to make these lights and basically to create this kind of omnibus shadowless lighting that Michael wanted in the taxi, you know, like to make it feel like it was natural. But the problem in the taxi was, again, the mediums look good at a you know signal to noise. But then we went in for the close ups and. They just the noise was too much on the face, so we had to raise the IRE to reduce the the noise, right? So it's basically pretty more signal. You know, I hate to even talk like this signal to noise, more light, you know, basically. But but you know, um, so so we made this decision, like, okay, you know, what we're gonna have to do is when we we go to the club, so just gonna to, I'm gonna have to crank the light up a little bit, expose it the same way for the background, but we'll power window all the faces later. And, and that way we won't have noise on the faces or the noise will match the mediums and the wides. Why that was, you know, so I think for collateral, 
you know, um, that would have helped to have, you know, it would have helped to have a, a modern day sensor. But, you know, look, I think, again, collateral was different. It was a discovery, you know, that it was a discovery of how to, how to bring this, you know, what you see by eye out, you know, onto the screen at night. And I think given, you know, we've seen so many movies now shot, you know, 2,500 ISO, whatever, at night, and you see everything. Not to say they don't have the same emotional value, but I think Collateral had a very particular one because it was part of the discovery of, of how, to, how to see it, you know, with this new technology. How could we render it with this new technology? You know, what worked, what didn't work? Whereas, whereas now I feel like, oh, you just put it on 2500, you see everything. You know, and I, you know, it's, it's a different, certainly a different path. So I'm, I'm very happy that Collateral happened when it happened and we had the challenges we had. Paul, thank you very much. Oh, guys, yeah, today. you guys are great. Yeah, you guys are really oh, good. Please, you've been fantastic because not only did you give us this like amazing story about Hugh Jackman and an alligator, oh, yeah, but yeah. You just, <laughs> we have an internal list of movies that we're dying to cover. Yeah. And you've hit upon some of our, our future prospects like Deja Vu or oh, Man yeah. on Fire. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Well, yeah, hit me up because it's, it's funny. Man on Fire was... Uh, I was just down in Mexico and I was at the hotel and, you know, turned on the TV and that, you know, I guess it was on net Netflix and it was like one of, one of the first three films on the, you know, uh, movies to watch or whatever popular movies or something like that. And then the crew people told me like, I guess Netflix is doing some big push and just pushed it again. But you know, that, that's a film I feel very um, strongly about. And I had a great, you know, it was really a good collision of, of art and technology with Tony Scott. And he was the most supportive director I worked with pretty much for cinematographers. And so it would be interesting to talk about that. Well, we'll, we'll make sure for, for a future to- Yeah, that's that fine. Yeah. yeah, it's a good one. It's yeah. just, well, I just think it's important because it's, you know, a lot of times you don't have that support. Well, you guys are a pleasure. You have your shit together. So, you know, so I appreciate it. It's nice to talk to you. Thanks that's again, Paul. Right on the show page. All right, Over write that I'll write that. Those guys have their shit together, man. I'll put that on there. I'll sign it. <laughs> All right. Take care, guys. We'll see you later. All right. Thanks, man. Bye-bye. Paul Cameron, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks. I don't think, I, I don't know what to think because that was just a wonderful conversation with, again, a guest that very handily talks themselves into at least five more shows with us. We're sorry, Paul, but you were just that good of a hang. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's, again, it's just also with like Man on Fire, whether, whether or not shot on film or digital, it, you know, it's, it's, it seems like those, because I think it was the same year. I think they both came out in 2004. I think so too. That was like a, around that time, whether or not every film that came out was amazing or every film that came out was crap, you know, whatever, there was this weird shift going on in, 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 in the industry. And it's just such oh, an interesting yeah. time to talk about. So yeah, it would be great to, to, to dive back into that stuff. Well, the point that you made earlier was 28 Days Later really was sort of the focal point of that shift because Danny Boyle was experimenting with shorts on those DV cameras. And then eventually 28 became his big sort of lean and mean horror movie where it's like, okay, well, well that's all stuff that we'll have to talk about on the 28 <laughs> Days Later episode, but- Well, I don't, know. I don't, I don't know if that's gonna fit in, unfortunately. I, I mean, as much as I love 28 Days Later, it, it it's it's too well talked about still. Uh, 
well, maybe we'll compromise and go with 28 weeks later. Exactly. There you go. Yeah. Fine. 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 Okay. Uh, I, I would love to get the the director of that film on because he has a one of the two men that was going to make Bioshock and never got to. Wait. Wait. All right. I got to go back three threefold now. That, that was. Wait, wait. I can't remember. Was that Fede who made? No, it was. Uh, I am looking him up right now. Uh, because I know the other person was meant to make Bioshock because I asked them very quickly about it when we were talking about Cure for Wellness. Yes, I did the same thing. Um, because it feels like that, that feels like the movie Gore Verbinski made to get it out of his system. But Juan Carlos uh, Fernadillo. That, okay, I, they, that's if right. I'm okay. saying your name wrong, sir, and you are listening, I am sorry. But he was the man that came in, uh, I think, after Gore let, we need to have Gore Verbinski on the show. Well, I, I got I mean, I'm quickly going to say, and this, when we'll get off this quickly because I don't want to talk about it too much. Because I, I am, Bioshock as a game is it's very important to me. And I don't think, there's only very few people that could actually make the, make the film right. Because I don't, I don't think you can make that film. I don't think it should be made. Because there's something about the way the story unfolds as you as a player that makes it different compared to trying to tell that story. I don't think it's going to work, unfortunately. Anyway, let's move on. <laughs> yes, let's move on before I fire myself. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> anyway, I do agree that that is a, that Gore Verbinski would be a very singular person to have made that film. I don't think I don't. Th- I I actually disagree. I actually disagree. But that's we'll have this discussion another time. <laughs> yes, because uh, back to the positive side of things, I still think, for better or worse, Collateral is one of the most future-proofed movies from like that or the, the early aughts. Because there are very few films that I could, there's only two I could think of off the top of my head. And it's just because, you know, I might have to go back and watch some of my old favorites mm, and see what yeah. they hold up. But when I've watched movies from that era in HD, Collateral, even if you go on HBO Max right now and watch it, it is gorgeous. It is sterling. Like the only, I, I see what Paul Cameron is saying about the close ups though, because there's scenes like that initial scene where you see uh, Tom Cruise in like the train terminal or even like in the airport where it's like kind of that Michael Mann grainy sort of stuff that you would see again in Public Enemies that kind of killed Public Enemies for me. Hmm. But even with, besides that, there is just gorgeous cinematography and absolutely crystal clarity image that when you see some of these other movies converted to HD, you really need to put an effort into it for it to look good, whereas this almost feels like it was it was pre-made that way. The only other movie I can think of that falls into that distinction is Catch Me If You Can. Yeah, and I think that's I think that's the other interesting thing because just as we were kind of talking about with Paul and as you and I talked about before, actually, this is not recorded, you know, but that we idea- We talk a that, lot together. Yeah, well, in that, in, in my mind, before again, rewatching Collateral, I still in my head had this vision of it as feeling, feeling in essence, a little camcordery, I would say. And I think it's because at the time, my last watching, it was probably on an actual CRT TV, you know, that was like 30, you know, 25 inches or something like that. And it's it's gonna act differently. And when I went back and rewatched it, it really, it it looked better now than I remember it ever looking, even if I saw, and I, cause I didn't see it in the theater, unfortunately, but you know, it's one of those things. It's, it's, it's really stood a strange test of time in, in the most positive way. As far as visuals go. Oh yeah. No, I remember seeing it for the first time in theaters. Cause like 
that uh, especially in the summer of 2003 and 2004 my father my brothers and i were going like every weekend of the movies like for mm. some reason that was just our window like i would say 03 to 05 we were always at the movies and we were all amped for collateral and i think i would have to ask them for their own personal experiences but i think at least with my middle brother lewis that was one of the more mature movies that sort of helped build his movie going uh, for today and build his tastes. And I remember like, even then there were pieces of it that kind of looked a little great, like, like very, I, I can't think of the, the word, but just, they looked off for lack of a better word, like different from what you were used to seeing films look like because yeah. of the technology. But I think we just have uh, our, our ability to display movies has caught up with what Michael Mann was doing. And that's probably why it looks better now than it did before. Well, well me, I mean, I know it was Michael Mann's film, but what, what Paul was doing. Paul was doing, because that is exactly true. Because again, as Paul has been saying, this, this, this piggybacks perfectly, just well not not so much okay i'm going to cut that part because it's like trying to get give people more credit is what i'm trying to say but yeah something that i'm sure oh, wait so one two three so something i think paul would certainly agree with is we talk about these movies so much as a director's film and that that's partially true but there's also the fact that these are collaborations between directors and their directors of photography so it's not just one person's vision that's really being reflected here because it takes so many other people to go into that. And again, with the Ayatsi strike or a potential strike, because as of this recording, we do not know how the situation will progress. It is about giving everyone comfort to basically make the best movie possible or the best product possible. Yeah, I mean, there's, I almost, it's strange because I think because again, I don't want to. I don't want to assume, but in my mind, Paul's coming back, and we're gonna have a lot to talk about. So I, I, I almost oh. think it's like I want to save a lot of this discussion for when we have Paul back on the show. So yes, with that, I would say everybody now, please go cross off Collateral off your overdue rentals list if you haven't caught Reminiscence yet. Cross that off your list as well. And, and Mike, read up about how Russell Crowe and Adam Sandler were supposed to be in Collateral. Yeah. With Frank Darabont, I think, uh, 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 supposed to be directing. Oh, was there, I didn't realize that. Interesting. Darabont, well, Darabont, I knew about the other part. I didn't know about Frank Darabont. Well, let's see. Now I, got, now I have to pull it up because, if I'm not mistaken, Frank Darabont was uh, supposed to direct. He does go with a, an executive producer credit. And under, and in the original draft, he was supposed to be going to, it was supposed to be in New York. Mm. Interesting. Yeah, we had Mimi, Mimi Leader was uh, also attached to this at one point. Oh. Uh, Russell Crowe. Yeah, there, there were quite a few people that were, were attached to here. And I, I forget where Frank Darabont. Yeah, yeah, Frank, oh no. I think Stuart Beatty pitched it to Frank Darabont. Well, he may, have, may not have supposed to have directed it, but he, he did play a, a small part in here. And also, just one last thing before we go. I know yeah. I keep stepping my foot no, in the no, no. But I keep, I forgot how many people that we now have like a better understanding of as actors were in here. Like Mark Ruffalo was in here. Javier Bardem yeah. was in here. And then, of course, one of the coolest trivia pieces of all, 
uh, Jason Statham is technically playing his transporter character in the beginning. So Frank Martin is technically a bad guy. <laughs> well, you know, to go back to it, you know, since you brought it up, it's, it's, it's a little weird, with, with, especially with Javier Bardem, because you go back to all those interviews when No Country for Old Men came out, where he said, like, guys, you know, you want me to do this? I don't really speak English, you know? It's like, we've, we've heard you speak English, Javier. We, we, know, we know you do it. <laughs> up to that point. But anyway, Mike, if people need to find us out on the internet, where can they find us? Well, that is a question that so many have asked, and I need to find my, there's my notebook. Okay, that is a question that so many have asked, and the only scripture that I have to, to go by is my trusty notebook that I wrote all this down in, but I'll memorize one day. You can find us on Twitter, at Rentals Overdue, on Facebook, and on TikTok, at Overdue Rentals, on Instagram, at Overdue Rentals Show, and you can email us love letters, uh, complaints, concerns, reviews at overdurentals at gmail.com. And speaking of reviews, don't forget to leave a star rating and a lovely write-up wherever you digest fine podcasts, because that's the only way we're going to know how to get better, if we can even get better. Because I don't know, I kind of think we got a sweet show going here. Apparently, we got our shit together. Oh, yeah. Overdue Rentals, we have our shit together. Mike. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.